the, my topic for this weekend is something that is, is very dear to me, the Dhamma practice I've been very interested in doing for many years. Um, when I proposed to do it as a topic for the weekend, uh, uh, there was some concern that you know maybe only four people would show up because nobody would be interested in something that is a little more obscure in meditation than a mindfulness practice and vipassana and things like that. So I'm really glad to see I'm glad to see so much interest. It's really wonderful. It's very exciting. I'm really looking forward to this weekend. It is, it's going to be very interesting. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't. Although, I, I promise you that at the very least, you'll leave knowing a lot more about what the jhanas are and uh, how they are practiced and the role that they play in, uh, in traditional Buddhist uh, practice, which is a, a very important role. But what I'm really hoping is that many of you will have uh, uh, have some experience of jhanas if you haven't already uh, over the course of the weekend, and it will interest you enough to uh, want to pursue that further. So whether that happens or not, we'll have to see. We'll 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 find out on th- on Sunday afternoon. How many of you? How many of you have already done some sort of jhana practice at one time or another? One, two, three, four. A few, not a lot. How many of you uh, know something about the jhanas? Uh, looks like probably about three times that many. But I assume that all of you are interested in knowing more, and that's good. Shelley, do we have very many more people likely to show up? Maybe two or three. Two or three? Okay. We'll go ahead and assume that this that we're beginning now. Well, then we'll officially begin. Good evening once again. <laughs> Welcome. It's very good to have you here. So let's begin with a short meditation, just to get us in the right frame of mind. So if you please make yourself comfortable. Relaxed, and just close your eyes and take a moment to come fully into the present. Become aware of your body. Just check in on your mental state. You might find that it's uh, a happy state. It is for me. There's this contentedness about being here with all of you in this wonderful place. And on this wonderful planet, 
So if you could just cultivate some joyfulness, and then with that joyfulness, just begin to do whatever practice it is that you normally do. Do it joyfully. just wanted to get us all in the mood, but also, while it's really fresh, just reflect on what happened over the course of the last 15 or 20 minutes, what you did and what you experienced. With this many people, there were quite a few different styles of meditation going on, but there's certain things that... that, uh, would be consistently true of everyone here, that there was a kind of intentional activity going on in your mind to do with attention and awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody that's not true of? As a matter of fact, it's hard to be conscious of that. <laughs> well, they're, they're, the intention part cannot be there. Your mind can be going on its own. But when you're meditating, there's... Uh, there's intention behind it. You, there was some component of directing and sustaining your attention, right? And there was also uh, an important component of an awareness of what was going on. Uh, was whatever practice you were doing, uh, you were, I'm sure, keeping track of whether or not you were still doing it or had forgotten and slipped into a little bit of daydreaming or slipped into dullness or things like that. So there's a a meta-awareness, a larger awareness beyond just what your attention was directed towards as to what your mind was doing and whether or not it was what you intended it to be doing. So this this is sort of what's at the root of all of our different meditation practices. And as we learn to do them more successfully, whether, whether or not in that particular style it's pointed out to us, we need to learn to gain some control over the movement of attention, because attention initially is very slippery and goes all over the place. And the other thing that we absolutely have to do is to develop that awareness that allows us to know when we're not doing what we intend to do and make corrections for it. And as we will see, uh, this, is, this is the same basic element that is present all the way through to uh, the practice of what are called the jhanas. Jhana, it's a Pali word. Um, the Buddha lived in an area of India and traveled in an area where many different dialects of Magadhi were spoken. And Pali was the formal dialect. I gather 
this is common in many parts of the world where there are a lot of different dialects, that there will be some formal dialect by which people from different regions can uh, communicate with each other. And uh, so the teachings that have come down to us are in the Pali language. Pali is derived from Sanskrit. It's one of the Sanskrit family of languages. And interestingly enough, several hundred years after the passing of the Buddha, these teachings of the Buddha that have been preserved in the Pali language were translated into Sanskrit. Um, and a lot of there, this resulted in new Sanskrit words coming into existence called Pali. That's called uh, Buddhist Sanskrit. When the, when the Buddhist teachings were translated into Sanskrit, even though Pali was derived from Sanskrit, there were a lot of words that had come to be used in a highly specific way in Pali with reference to Dharma practice and meditation, which, when this was translated back into Sanskrit, it became Sanskritized as Buddhist Sanskrit, and uh, it became sort of a technical uh, uh, language or terminology for Dharma and Buddhist practice. Jhana is one of those words, but if we look at the root of it, the root meaning uh, uh, comes, well, it, it, it actually comes from uh, the word meaning to meditate. And a meditator is uh, jayin, and jhana is, uh, is meditation. And so, at some point, early on in the history of Buddhism, pretty much all meditation was referred to as jhana. But one thing we do have to keep in mind when we compare it, there are many different kinds of meditations that people do now, and they share certain basic characteristics, as I pointed out to you. But one distinction that we do need to make about the word jhana and the way it was used, that referred to meditation where there was a certain amount of skill developed. So it didn't refer to any old meditation, somebody who'd never meditated before sits down for 20 minutes and there's a lot, a lot of mind wandering or dullness or things like that. Uh, so the word jhana meant meditation where there was a certain stability of attention, a certain degree of mindfulness, uh, freedom from dullness, a certain skill level. But that's, that's how general the word originally started out to be. And in early Buddhism, interestingly enough, uh, from what we can tell from the sutras, this was the meditation that everybody did. It was the meditation that the Buddha did uh, that led to his own enlightenment. It was the meditation that he taught over and over again in the sutras. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look in the sutras, you'll find jhanas come up so often. Every description of the Eightfold Path when it comes to uh, right samasamadhi, right concentration. It says, and what is right concentration? Right concentration is first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. 
I didn't know that when I first learned about the jhanas. As a matter of fact, when I first learned to meditate, I was first introduced to vipassana practice, uh, the vipassana noting practice. Uh, but then I was very fortunate. I had teachers who were very steeped in the and the oldest Buddhist uh, practice traditions. And uh, so I complained to my teacher that I was not too satisfied with this Vipassana method. And his response was, well, why don't you learn to do Samatha and Samatha Vipassana? And I started uh, practicing Samatha. I liked it. And the culmination of Samatha is Jhana. And, and so I followed that path for many years and learned to, to practice jhanas. But the jhanas I learned are very deep. It's a degree of concentration where you really have no awareness of, of your body, no awareness of sounds and sensations and things like that. It is a very deep state, very profound state of concentration. And for many years, I thought, because that's what I had been taught was jhana, I thought that's, that's what jhana was. I had no idea that it had an older history of having a much broader meaning. But over the years, I came in contact with other people who were doing other kinds of jhana practice that they had learned from different people and discovered that uh, there were actually many kinds of jhana. And also a lot of controversy around all of these different things called jhana. Because no matter what kind of jhana somebody did, they were absolutely convinced that what somebody else did either wasn't really jhana because it wasn't deep enough or else it wasn't really jhana because it was too deep and it, in fact, you know, it was trance-like and a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very interesting. I became engaged in a number of discussions with people that practice in different traditions. And at, some, at one point, uh, I, I, I shouldn't I don't want to make it sound like I'm the only person that was looking at it. A lot of people. When meditation came to North America, a lot of very brilliant people began looking into it, learning it, and learning more about it. And quite a few of them noticed that, that there were some inconsistencies in what was being brought to the West. It was called jhana. And uh, a, a lot of things that didn't exactly line up with what you would find if you went and read the sutras, the original teachings of the Buddha, or at least the closest thing that we have to the original teachings of the Buddha. As it turns out, these very deep jhanas, like the kind that I learned, were a later development. Uh, the method of practice that I learned, you'll find it described in a book called the Visuddhimagga, or Path of Purification, that uh, was written by Buddha Gosa and, uh, in, in about, I believe, 430 AD. So that was uh, 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 900, 1,000 years after the time of the Buddha. And it was a compilation. By that time, there were many different approaches to doing practice. And this Vasudhi Magga was a compilation. Buddha Gosu was a scholar. He was not a meditator. But he, he read other texts, and he talked to meditation teachers, and he compiled this teaching, which has is kind of the basis of modern Theravadan tradition. And there it describes jhanas in these terms that are very difficult to achieve. They're very deep, profound jhanas. They're actually very wonderful jhanas, but they are uh, they require many, many years of intensive practice to be able to achieve. And uh, many people would not be able to. Uh, as it happens, the tradition I was trained in was also uh, uh, it was it was an amalgamation of Theravadan and Tibetan, the Kagyu sect of Tibetan, and so I also became uh, acquainted with the Tibetan commentarial literature on on jhanas, and the same thing: the presentation of the jhanas in these Tibetan commentaries was this really amazing, profound state of concentration, complete withdrawal of the mind from the senses, of a sort that very few people can achieve. And so, as it happened, over the centuries, people stopped practicing jhana throughout most of the Theravadan world and uh, throughout most of the Tibetan Mahayana tradition. Now, here's a very interesting thing. Early on, early Buddhism went into China, and the word jhana, when it became Sanskritized, it became jhana. When it went to China, it became chan. And the principal Buddhism of China was chan, named after this meditation technique. And the practices within that tradition continued to be strongly oriented towards the, the samatha and, and the absorptions uh, that are, that, as I'll explain to you, are probably much more what the original jhana was. And then from China, it went to Japan, and chan became zen. And indeed, in zen, zen is the meditation practice that it does lead to these same absorptions that are spoken of in the sutras. So it's not that these methods were lost anywhere, but they became rarely taught and rarely practiced in the Theravadan countries and in the Tibet and, and, and Tibetan Buddhism, where they had gained this sort of mystique as being super difficult to achieve meditative states that only one in a thousand virtuoso meditators would ever be able to, to accomplish. Any of you heard or read anything about jhanas that gave you that impression that they were very difficult to achieve, that it was rare, quite wonderful, but hey, you know, for most of us, forget it. Yeah. Well, back to the personal part of my story here. As more and more Westerners came in contact with these Buddhist teachings, 
and of course, being the kind of people that we are, we listen to what the teacher says, but then we want to go back and read what it says in the books, right? And they notice that, gee, the teachers sort of blow off Jonas and, and they give this very difficult version and discourage you from ever going after them, but you go back and you read in the sutras and all it is is Jonas, Jonas, Jonas. And so they began to think, well, what's going on there? So a discussion began. It was a very interesting discussion. And uh, at some point, they, they began to distinguish <coughs> commentarial jhanas from sutta jhanas as two different kinds. And I said, hey, you know, these jhanas in the suttas that he was talking about all the time and that he wanted everybody to practice, and it seemed like everybody was able to practice and everybody was practicing, when you examine them really carefully, they don't require, the, they, you know, they... they are not nearly so onerous as what's described in the Visuddhi Maga and what's described in the Tibetan commentary. So this was illuminating, and we began to learn a lot more about the true natures of jhanas and Buddhist meditation as this was explored and discussed and things were compared. But it led to, unfortunately, these labels Visuddhi Magha Jhana, or Commentarial Jhana, and the other label, Sutta Jhana, or Sutra Jhana, they stuck a little bit too well, and they led, inevitably, as you can imagine, to this debate, which are the real Jhanas? <laughs> which are the real Jhanas? These are the real Jhanas. No, 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 these are, these are the real Jhanas. These are the ones that Buddha's taught. They, Buddha taught. They must be the real ones. Anyway, as the discussion went on, it became clear to some of us that, especially you go if you read the sutras, you would find that there are sutras where jhana is discussed in precisely those terms that the commentaries did. So those are real jhanas too. They're not some different kind of jhana that was made up a thousand years later or fifteen hundred years later. They're in the sutras too. What it really tells us is that that. Jhana shouldn't be thought of as quite such a restrictive term as it has come to be thought of, no matter which side of the fence you're on. Because, and we do have two sides of the fence. If you start looking into jhana practice, so the people that do so-called sutta jhanas, and these are easy jhanas, and, and those other jhanas aren't real jhanas, and they won't get you enlightened anyway, and they were invented a thousand years later, and blah, 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 and then... You know, the other side. Uh, uh, but really, taking a second look, what we discover is that the jhanas, as they're described in the sutras, can be practiced at many different levels or depths of concentration, different degrees of concentration. And uh, so they're not out of reach. They're available. They're available as a practice to, to any of us, as available as any other meditation practice is. They do, they do like any meditation practice, take time. Uh, uh, regular practice, uh, some contact with good teachers, and so forth. But they're no more unattainable than any other kind of meditation practice. And, of course, as you become more skilled, you can enter into deeper and deeper versions of the jhanas. So this, is, this, was, this was really illuminating for
for me because I had learned the deep jhanas. And I really started out with the idea, well, these are the real jhanas, and I don't know what those rinky-dink things that other people are doing, but I do the real jhanas. But as I began to think about it more, and then uh, the person who really... uh, really opened my eyes to the tremendous value of real jhanas in the sense of jhanas that can be practiced at many different levels of concentration was Lee Brasington. Anybody heard of Lee Brasington? Yeah, yeah. He teaches a kind of jhana that is uh, that he learned from Hayakima. And as it turns out, there are a variety of different jhanas being taught in the world right now at different levels of concentration, which I'm going to talk to you about over this weekend, and we're going to try to enter into some of those jhanas together. Just to give you an idea of those. Please. Okay. These are Ayakima's book, Who, Who is Myself and When the Iron Eagle Flies, where she talks about jhanas. I call these the light jhanas, L-I-T-E. I'll explain why later on. And then, let's see. Shayla Catherine, she wrote this book, Focused and Fearless. This is a somewhat deeper form of jhana practice. Then there is uh, Ajahn Brahm, Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond is a book that you may have seen. There's also this little free book that you can write off for, and they'll send to you, called the jhanas. These are a deeper kind of jhana, and I call these light jhanas, L-I-G-H-T, because they use the illumination that comes up as a part of piti as a way of entering the jhana. And then there's, well, then of course, Pa'ap Sayadaw, and these two of his students, uh, Stephen Snyder and Tina Rasmussen, recently published this book on jhanas. These are fairly deep jhanas, but they still use the light, uh, the light as the as a meditation object for entering the jhana. And then there's uh, uh, Hanapola Gunaratna, who's also, uh, this book, The Path of Serenity and Insight, was actually originally a PhD thesis that he did. He was a monk since he was a young man. Came to the United States to uh, start uh, to to take over uh, a uh, uh, Theravadan center in Washington D.C. And he did he did agree a degree in Buddhist studies on jhanas and on samatha meditation. And this is his more recent book, Beyond Mindfulness in Plain English. So, but what these represent is a spectrum of different approaches to jhana that are are practiced at different levels. And there's some others that haven't arrived in book form yet. Um, what I call the ultralight jhanas, uh, which as far as I can tell, uh, this is about the lightest jhana that you can enter into that's really a jhana, and it really has all the benefits of jhana practice, where you can actually sustain in that state without, within 30 seconds or a minute, either slipping into dullness or, or, or distraction. So I'll, I'll talk to you all about these different jhanas and explain them in more detail over the weekend. But the idea here is that 
whatever it is that that word jhana refers to, uh, it has it has a broader meaning than just these very uh, very strictly defined and difficult to attain deep jhanas, and has a tremendous utility. It's just an incredible utility, and I'll say a little bit about that too. Here's another thing that some of you may have heard, many of you may have heard, is um, about samatha and jhanas both, is that these aren't appropriate practices to do. That all the, 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 the jhanas lead to trance-like states, and yeah, you feel good, but you know, it doesn't go anywhere. People don't get enlightened in jhana practice. Or the samatha in general, you know, that... Uh, and if we look at uh, the history of Buddhist meditation, we'll see that that is insupportable. One of the things you may have heard is you can't practice mindfulness in the jhanas. Anybody ever heard that? Uh, it's, uh, somehow these two are totally incompatible, and if you practice jhanas, uh, that you, there, there can be no mindfulness in the jhanas. This usually goes along with the description of jhanas as being trance-like. But that too, it turns out, is not really the case. Um, the history of this meditation technique, it existed before the time of the Buddha. He, after he left home, he went one after another to two teachers uh, uh, Udaka Ramaputra was his second teacher. Alara Kalama was his first teacher. He went to two teachers, one after another. The first one, Alara Kalama, taught him jhanas. And uh, under that teacher, he mastered up to, we'll talk about the different jhanas later on, but what's sometimes called the seventh jhana or the third formless jhana, it's the jhana of the base of nothingness. And uh, when the when the Buddha to be had mastered that practice, uh, Alara Kalama said, "Well, I, you know, uh, join me and we'll be teachers together. And uh, you know, you now know everything I know, and you've experienced what I've experienced. And this is the highest achievement of the spiritual path." And the Buddha was not satisfied with that, so he went on. To, uh, he left Alara Kalama and went to Udaka Ramaputra. Ramaputra means uh, son of Rama. And he studied under Udaka Ramaputra and mastered what's called the eighth jhana or the fourth formless jhana, which is the jhana of the base of neither perception nor non perception, all of which sounds very mysterious, but I'll explain it to you as we go along here. But this was an even higher level. And uh, as it turned out, he actually surpassed his teacher, Udaka Ramaputra, uh, attaining a practice level that, uh, the, that Ramaputra's teacher, Rama, that's why he was called Ramaputra, he was the disciple of Rama, he a- achieved the level of mastery of Udaka Ramaputra's teacher, Rama. And so Udaka Ramaputra said, 
well, you've achieved everything Rama did, so you should, you know, take over my crowd of uh, students here and you be the teacher. And the Buddha said, no, thank you. This is not what I'm looking for. So let me explain to you what those people were teaching. They were teaching jhanas very effectively. They were teaching jhanas. This meditation practice had developed in the Brahminical tradition, and the philosophy behind it, um, Brahmins were desirous of breaking free of the wheel of cyclic death and reincarnation, and were seeking uh, divine union with Brahma, with the ultimate. And their understanding, Adaka Ramaputras and Alara Kalamas, was that the way to achieve this liberation was through a series of meditation practices which basically reversed the Brahman cosmology. So that you went from being in a solid body, progressively finer and finer states of refinement, leading to the states of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. And essentially what you were doing in this jhana practice is working your way backwards through the process by which human beings had been created by Brahma out of, out of the ultimate. And when you sat in meditation, when you entered the, the uh, jhana of the base of nothingness or the jhana of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, you were, you were dwelling in a state that was very close to this primordial state. Uh, it was discussed in terms of having discovered the true self. This, this was your, your true self that you were when you were in this state. They considered residing in that state to be very important. And the longer you, the more time you spent in that state, the more likely you were to achieve the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, the ultimate liberation didn't happen until after you died. When you died, if you'd been practicing in this way, then you would become one with, you would, you would, Realize your true nature and become one with Brahma, and you would never again be reborn into this cycle of individuality and suffering and so forth. This was this was the the teaching that the Buddha rejected. He was looking for a liberation, an awakening, an enlightenment. Although I think at those points, perhaps those words. He wouldn't have used those because he didn't know what form this was taking. But he was looking for a liberation in this life, not something that was going to happen after you died as a result of spending a lot of time in a trance-like state. And because of the view that was held by the Brahmins, they did these jhanas in a way that was very trance-like. They're more totally, completely absorbed and removed from the world of samsara you were, the better, the stronger the effect it would have, and the greater your chances of becoming liberated when you when you die. So so did they did these practices in a very 
in a very trance-like way. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he took this method and he changed it in a very profound way. He said, you practice the jhanas with mindfulness, not trance-like, but with mindfulness. And he said, liberation is achieved in this life, not after you die. These were two really significant changes. But he learned the method of the jhanas. He did them according to this system of thought. Uh, you have to understand that the Brahmanical religion was very ritual-based. Most of that religion involved the performance of rituals, and everything that happened was a result of how well rituals were performed. So the impression that comes down to us is that's the way they tended to regard the meditation practices and the liberation that they were seeking, too, is that it was a, like a ritual. If you went into these deep states of meditation and you stayed there often enough, long enough, it's like performing the ritual in the right way, then in a sort of magical way when you died, this liberation and, and ultimate freedom from rebirth, re reincarnation would occur. And the Buddha rejected that. He left the Dhaka Ramaputra. And for the next six years, he wandered around. He did, he, he, it seems from what he says in other sutras that he must have had contact with a number of different teachers, studied with them, learned their doctrines and their practices. He also did a lot of ascetic practices where, you know, uh, uh, living on a couple of grains of rice a day and, and standing up, never sitting or lying down, and, you know, things that are really torturous to the body. He did that for, he did those, a whole variety of things for six years, and that got him nowhere, and then he reconsidered. When he reconsidered, he went back to the jhana practices. And he did jhana practices, but he did them in his own way, and he achieved his own enlightenment as a result of doing jhana practice. And that's in the sutras. You can all read that, and uh, if you haven't already heard that, were you already familiar with that? Did you know that that's how the Buddha became enlightened? Those of you that haven't, I've got a handout for you that has a lot of this detail, and I didn't, I didn't include that particular description. It's a really, it's a really sweet one. But he sat down, entered first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, and then from the fourth jhana, he uh, experienced the insights that led to his awakening. And then thereafter, he taught the jhanas. But uh, where he teaches the jhanas, it's very interesting. There's one, there's one sutra where he has a conversation with, uh, with a Brahmin, who is obviously familiar with these, these practices. And, and the Brahmin accepts him as being an enlightened being and says, so for me to cross the flood, great teacher, what is the object? Uh, of meditation that I should use. And the Buddha recommended to him the, the jhana of the base of nothingness. And he said, practice with mindfulness. And uh, the Brahmin did kind of a head scratch on that one and said, with mindfulness, but can you stay in the jhana? Can, can a yogi stay in the jhana if he's uh, in the jhana with mindfulness? And the Buddha assured him that he could. And that not only that, he uh, would 
achieve liberation. We see this, and you'll see this in a handout that I give you. All of the descriptions of the jhanas have the word mindfulness in them, and they, they stress that word mindfulness. So mindfulness is a part of the jhana practice, and it's what makes the difference. It is what the Buddha discovered and introduced into the practice that makes the whole difference, the practicing the jhanas with mindfulness. Because you see, the other things that the Buddha discovered is that awakening isn't a magical event that happens as a result of doing things in just the right way. Which actually is, even today, a widespread belief. Somehow, if you sit down and you meditate in just the right way, then sooner or later, just like a lightning bolt, it'll come to the top of your head and, ah, you're enlightened. But that's precisely what, in the sutras, the Buddha said doesn't happen. He said, liberation, awakening, enlightenment, is a cognitive event. And that's why you have to practice mindfulness. It is a realization. It's it's not some magical thing that happens to you. It is seeing and understanding things as they really are. And the reason that the jhanas are such a wonderful way to do this is that when you when we look at them more closely, you'll see they're like a serial dissection of the mind. You take the ordinary, everyday mind, and then you refine it to the state uh, that's called access concentration, from which you enter the first jhana. And you enter the first jhana, and it has certain characteristics that define it. And then you go to the second jhana, which is a further refinement, and, and it's like peeling another layer off the onion. And so going through these jhanas is like dissecting the mind, one layer at a time. And it's done with mindfulness. And by doing it with mindfulness, it leads to uh, insight, and the insight leads to awakening. So that's that's the whole idea behind the jhanas. Any questions about that? I see so. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Um, because I've heard different things from different teachers, and um, uh, I think what I heard was that the jhanas. Well, one teacher says you have to move through the jhanas. That's Tanasaro Jap, Biku. And um, <coughs> other teachers, like Ajahn Amaro, say jhana banana. You know, you just can't really get enlightened through the jhanas because they are not. Um, they're all conditioned states. Mm-hmm. The jhanas are conditioned, and enlightenment is not conditioned. So that, you know... And, and what Ajahn Amaro says is absolutely true, but meaningless. The only <laughs> unconditioned state is nirvana, which is like saying, so the only way you can get enlightened is nirvana. And anything else you do is not going to work, because it's a conditioned state. So I, what, what he says is true, but he... I've heard all of these things many, many times from many different teachers, myself. Yeah. And there are a lot of misunderstandings uh, that have been perpetuated in many different lineages for many, many centuries. And so we hear these, we tend to hear these things over and over again. 
there are views. Now, you mentioned uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tanja. Here's a very... I recommend this book highly to those of you who would like to go into this a little more deeply. It's called Wings to Awakening, which is actually... Uh, this is an aside, but this is the title is a pun on a very important topic because there has... In the meditation community, there's this idea that, well, we've got samatha, and we've got vipassana, we've got concentration, and we've got mindfulness, and never the twain shall meet. The wings to awakening that this title refers to are samatha and vipassana, samadhi and sati. And the, the metaphor is that they're like the wings of a bird, and the bird cannot fly with one wing. <laughs> but anyway... What, there is a section in here, section F, on concentration and discernment. And Tanja translates discernment, uh, uh, translates sati as discernment. Because mindfulness is really a terrible translation of sati. But we're kind of stuck with it. But in trying to correct that, when he wrote this book, he tried everywhere, where, everywhere the, the sutra said sati, he made it discernment. So there's this whole section on concentration and discernment where he, he, he points out the role of the, of the jhana. He says, the role of jhana as a condition for transcendent discernment is one of the most controversial issues in the Theravada tradition. And he goes on to talk about there's, those, there's these different views that have come up that some believe the only way that you can become enlightened is through the jhanas. There is no other way. And then there are those that say that, well, you only need the jhanas for the third and, and fourth final stage, the final stages of enlightenment. And, and then there's the people who say, jhanas, you'll never, like Amara, you'll never get enlightened practicing the jhanas. So there's, there is a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstanding out there. And it's wonderful when somebody like, Tanja, who's one of the most major translators of the Pali Sutras into English language, has gone to the trouble to get all these different references and sutras and line them up together. And it gives you a chance to see that, in, indeed, from the point of view of the Buddha's original teaching, uh, which obviously Ajahn Amaro is not familiar with, you know, the jhanas are a path to enlightenment. Whether they are the only path or not, it's, that, that's a different question. It's not actually addressed by the Buddha in the sutras. But they are unquestionably the path that he taught. So, very good question. And I'm sure others of you are not saying anything, but you've heard things like this. And, and it's important that we talk about these things. I don't want to be another teacher that you're hearing one version of things from. Because I've spent a lot of time looking into these things on my own behalf over the years and then over the last couple of weeks on your behalf. And so I want to share with you what I've learned about these things, about the historical basis of these things and where some of these uh, unfortunate views have arisen from. But I can assure you, the jhanas are probably the most powerful path of mindfulness that does indeed, without question, lead to awakening very, very quickly. Yes? 
pardon me for seeming a little bit thick, but it sounds as though the coming weekend will be a methodical step through of these jhanas as a clear, well-defined technique that you will narrate. Am I wrong? Um, well, I wouldn't put it that way. What I want to give you is a more in-depth understanding of jhanas and to acquaint you with a number of different ways of practicing jhanas. Now, the ones that I have in mind, see, this is all a big unknown. My own teachers and probably many of my peers would say, oh, what you're trying to do is impossible, but I don't think so. Um, what we'll be focusing on initially is seeing if you, have, as many of you as possible, can have an experience of what I call the ultralight jhanas. And that's not, that's, don't, don't take that as a derogatory term. Ultralight doesn't mean that they're almost useless. They're very powerful and very, very useful. And if you succeed in that, even if it's just for a few moments, you will have become acquainted with a tool that you can use to greatly accelerate the quality of your meditation practice and allow you much more quickly to access deeper jhanas and, in general, no matter what practice you're doing, to enjoy much greater benefit from it. Then I'm also going to uh, spend some time with you seeing if you can experience the light, L-I-T-E jhanas. These are the ones I learned from Lee Brasington. Uh, they're the ones that Ayakima taught. Uh, they require a little better concentration initially, but you don't have to have mastered that state of concentration. You don't have to be able to enter that state of concentration every time you sit down. You just need to be able to enter that state of concentration for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then you can enter uh, this kind of jhana. And so I'm going to see as many of you as possible if I can guide you to having an experience of these light jhanas. Uh, and depending on the, the time and the, the mood and everything else, we might take uh, a stab at the, some of the deeper jhanas, but certainly you'll learn about them. You'll understand what they are, how they're different from the ones that, that we do together, uh, and how they are. It, it, and what I hope is it will emerge from this is a much clearer whole picture of what jhanas are. And if I succeed in doing that, you're going to walk out of here with a much clearer picture of what meditation is. It sounds... Uh, I, I want to be very cautious because I have a lot of over-freighted language. Yeah. Just too, too freighted. It sounds very much like you're... You sound exactly like my uh, altered stage sight teacher when he was describing depths of hypnotic trance and how people are hypnotized all the time. They just don't know it. It's not a very big deal. You can do the, the white line hypnosis when you're mm -hmm. just driving and you're not really... You know, all checked out like people think in the movies, I'm a zombie. Um, it sounds like you're describing these subtle transits in trance depth, but you earlier were very careful 
to say, well, trance isn't actually what we're yeah. taught. So I don't want to go there too, but that's the word I learned in school, so I'm stuck with very, it. Very good question. Jhanas are not trances. Right. Only people, they only hear that they are from people that have never learned to. Right, but, uh, they, but apparently practice. they have depths of them in the same way trances do. They, well, we're limited by language. They do have depth to them. They, they, they have depth of concentration. Um, some subtleties, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, some subtleties <coughs> of the way the mind works and how we're actually we're, we're working with the nature of the mind itself to lead it to be able to experience different states that are available to all of us, but that, uh, you know, without, without some guidance, we never, we, we, we never know what happens when you turn left behind that tree and, you know, see what's over there. You mentioned hypnosis. This is not trance-like. This is not hypnosis. But I will say one thing that in order for this to, for me to be able to guide you when we're doing, when we're doing guided meditation, you have to go with my direction. And in some ways that's similar to hypnosis, but I'm not going to be hypnotizing you. Instead, I'm going to be inviting you. This is a place I've been over and over again, many, many times, and I'm inviting you to follow me to this place. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Um, and, and so you have to be willing to go. And if you're resistant or hesitant, then it's not going to work as well. I so told you it, trance wasn't going to be a good word, but I stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. That, it, yeah. Well, don't worry. That was a very good question. Okay. Very good. And, and I, hope, I hope that you got a satisfactory answer to it. Yeah. I'm just curious if you see, if you see jhanas and the Four Foundations Practices. You see that they overlap? Are they covering the same territory, or are they separate practices? Jhanas and four foundations practices. Oh, the four the yeah. four foundations of mindfulness. Are they are they covering the same territory? They they're stand? covering the same territory. You think so? Yeah, they 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 are, absolutely, yeah. Uh, which is one of the things that you, one of the things that you may have heard is that you know the often people will take the Anapanasati Sutra. Mindfulness of the Breath Sutra, and say, oh, this is about jhanas. And then they'll take the uh, Satipatthana Sutra, uh, which is commonly called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, although foundations is a ridiculous word, Four Applications of Mindfulness. That's what it is, right? Anybody that's familiar with it, it's four ways of applying mindfulness. And say, that's something completely different. They're not. They're both covering exactly the same territory in a different in, in a different way, but when you—that's one of the things I could really hope that that you'll come out of the weekend with. If not out of the weekend, if we work together, you'll come to a clear understanding of how of exactly what it is that both of these sutras are talking about. For those of you who are not familiar, uh, I did do a weekend a couple of years ago on the four applications of mindfulness. And those four applications are mindfulness of the body as an aggregate, mindfulness of the feelings as feeling, mindfulness of mental states as mental states, and mindfulness of mental objects or phenomena as the phenomena that they are. This is exactly what you do when, once you've developed the skill so that you can enter and leave the jhanas in sequence, and you work your way through first, second, third, fourth, 
uh, infinite space, infinite uh, consciousness, nothingness, and so forth, you are actually doing the foundations of mindfulness. So, they do those a lot. Yes? <clears throat> what I've been wondering about is uh, that uh, uh, I guess, uh, so, so even if uh, jhana and, and other and mindfulness practices can be combined, is there any concern about doing both at the same time? And specifically, okay. you taught me a new practice last week that I'm mm -hmm. really just barely getting the hang of that's quite yeah. different from jhana, and I'm wondering about uh, you know uh, working on two at once like that. Okay, this is not two different practices. This is not doing jhanas and mindfulness at the same time. Jhanas is a mindfulness practice. Always has been a mindfulness practice. You're not doing two different practices. You're 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 doing you're doing one kind of practice with uh, a a larger understanding of what it is that you're doing. So, I'm glad that you've been working on that practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's hard. <laughs> so, well. Let me tell you a little bit more about, let's go back to the basics. Let's work on the basics again. I've kind of given you a general introduction. And let's go back to what are these jhanas again, anyway? Okay. So, the word jhana originally meant meditation, but the way the Buddha used it in the sutras, it it referred specifically to certain meditation states. So what we can say is that jhana, it's equally correct to use jhana to refer to meditation of a certain quality in general, or to use it more precisely and specifically to refer to certain meditative states that were very clearly defined by the Buddha. Now, the word jhana is often translated into English as absorption, and that is an excellent translation. A very, very good way to translate it. Mental absorption. And mental absorption means that you are quite fully engaged with whatever it is that you're engaged with. It, uh, we all experience mental absorptions, right? Anybody here that doesn't know what a mental absorption is? A lot of mental absorptions. Okay. Are all mental absorptions jhanas? Well, no. If we look at mental absorptions in general, we find that they can be distinguished in, from one from another in several different ways. To begin with, there are mental absorptions that are wholesome and there are those that are unwholesome. Wholesome in the sense that what you become absorbed with is inherently wholesome, and wholesome in the sense that your mental state that leads to the absorption is wholesome, and likewise unwholesome. You can become absorbed with lust, or greed, or hatred, or all kinds of other things like that, right? Those, and those are pretty intense absorptions. I know you've experienced them at some time or another, Everyone has experienced intense absorptions of an unwholesome nature. And 
I made up a little list. This is the handout that you're going to get later. Uh, okay. Unwholesome absorptions are those based in greed, lust, anger, hatred, dullness, addiction, escape, fear, worry, guilt, cynicism, self-doubt, self-pity, or self-loathing. So with a more complete list. Now, has everybody identified at least a couple of absorptions that they've experienced? Okay, and there was a sutta where this was made very clear, and I did include that in the handout. You know, the, uh, uh, what the Buddha called jhanas were only wholesome absorptions. Okay, for an absorption to be wholesome, the five what the Buddha defined as the five hindrances, and you've heard me talk about that, but some of you may not be familiar with it. The five hindrances must be completely absent even if they're only temporarily absent. But they must not be a part of, of the jhana, or, or, or of the absorption. Uh, so for, for an absorption to be called a jhana, first of all, it has to be of a wholesome sort. Uh, and just in the Buddha's words, and what sort of mental absorption did he praise? There's the case where a monk quite withdrawn from sensuality withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, etc. So, the object can't be something that is inherently unwholesome, the mental state can't be unwholesome. So that's, that's one way that absorptions differ from each other, and, and that we can distinguish what the Buddha called jhanas. The other thing is when the Buddha defined them, they either either a part of each jhana or else the state from which the jhana was accessed was characterized by joy and happiness and uh, unification of mind. Uh, another jhana factor is equanimity. So for a jhana to for a state of absorption to be what the Buddha called the jhana, it has to it had to either include or be accessed from a state where these jhana factors of unification of mind, joy, happiness, and or equanimity were present. So it is narrowed down a little bit there. The fact that joy is present is really interesting. Now reflect once again on the absorptions that you've experienced in your life. On the wholesome absorptions, uh, or at least ones that are not unwholesome, and the joy and the happiness that you experienced when you were completely absorbed in doing something that you really, you really wanted to do, and that you were good at, and that you were doing well. We've all had that experience, right? As a matter of fact, the uh, Haley Chiksent Mihaly, positive psychologist, has studied optimal experience and discovered a state that he called flow, which is a perfect description of what the Buddha was talking about when he said mental absorptions that are based in uh, unification of mind, joy, happiness, and or equanimity. So Csikszentmihalyi said, these investigations have revealed that what makes experience genuinely satisfying 
is a state of consciousness called flow, a state of concentration so focused that it amounts to complete absorption in an activity. Everyone experiences flow from time to time and will recognize its characteristics. People typically feel strong, alert, in effortless control, unselfconscious, and at the peak of their abilities. Both the sense of time and emotional problems seem to disappear. And this is something that's characteristic about jhanas, not to be mistaken with trance-like states, but what they have in common with some trance-like states is the normal sense of time. You know, it's disturbed. It's changed. In, in deep jhanas, you may have no sense at all of the passage of time. But in any jhana, you will have an altered sense of the passage of time. But I know some of you have had that in meditation anyway. You've sat in meditations, and, and they might have been jhanas, and you didn't know what name to put to them, or they might not have been. But when you enter into that flow state, it will seem like, wow, how could the, how could the meditation be over with already? And so that is one of the characteristic things. So, uh, emotional problems seem to disappear, and there is an exhilarating feeling of transcendence. And that, that exhilarating feeling of transcendence is what is called piti in Pali, uh, called meditative joy. And what the Buddha said, you know, we're only talking about the ones where that's present, at least in the state from which you access the jhana. It's not present in all of the jhanas. In some jhanas, you actually have moved beyond that. You've peeled the onion to a depth where you're beyond that. But you entered the jhana from a state where it was present. I'm just going to continue with some of the things that Csikszentmihalyi discovered studying flow in ordinary people and ordinary daily activities. The activities that give rise to the flow experience are performed as an end in themselves, not for any other purpose. Does meditation qualify? The goals of the activity are clear, and the feedback is immediate. What is most important about the feedback is a symbolic message it contains. I have succeeded in my goal. This creates order in the flow of consciousness. If you were following your breath, as you continue to follow the breath, in-breath, out-breath, that's an unending stream of little successes, right? And when you forget, you know it instantly. And then, when you, and then you bring it back, right? Flow appears at the boundary where the challenge of the task is perfectly balanced with the person's ability to perform the task. This is where we go wrong in meditation very often, is we want to be better than we can be. We want to be able to perform our meditation practice at a level that we have not yet trained our mind to the degree to be capable of, or else we sat down with a mind that was sufficiently disturbed or dull already that we can't do that. But no matter what the state of the training of your mind is, your meditation can become a flow experience if you adjust your expectation to match what you're capable of doing. Now, it appears at the boundary when the challenge of the task is perfectly balanced. So you have to you have to do you have to be doing your absolute best but you have to adjust your level of expectation so that moment by moment you are rewarded by the success that you are capable of even if even if you 
uh, forget and your mind wanders, if the expectation that you hold is that the instant you realize that, you will be glad you realize, let go of it and come back to the breath, you've succeeded. And if you meditate in that way, rather than being, oh no, I forgot again, oh no, oh no, it becomes, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm a winner, oh yeah, and joy begins to arise and happiness begins to arise. It doesn't sound like exactly what he's saying. It sounds, it sounds to me like he's saying you have to adjust the actual task to make it easy enough to succeed. Okay, that's the. This is just a brief synopsis. Sure. If you read, here's the book, by the okay. way, and I recommend it. It's very, very good. This is yeah, there's a new version of it out. Uh, Flow: The Psychology of Optimal Experience, where he describes it. In, in here, he makes it clear because you see he's studying, and then the question comes. Why is this person experiencing flow and this person doing exactly the same thing as not? This is the reason that they, that internal adjustment is really critical. The expectation that you hold. Uh, surgeons, athletes, uh, assembly line workers. If you have an expectation that you're not able to consistently meet, you're not going to experience flow. So that internal adjustment is a part of it. Now, you know, uh, in the things that Csikszentmihalyi is talking about, flow in the world, the task itself is a very important part of it. And people will discover that they can achieve flow doing a particular thing. Playing the violin. They might not even be very good, but they've discovered that they can do that. And the same person might not be able to enter flow doing other things. Right? So in, in terms of what Csikszentmihalyi is looking at, he's looking at, there are a lot of different activities that certain people can experience flow in more readily than other activities. So the activity is, is a part of it. And the skill level is a part of it, too. Um, for example, if you're learning to throw darts, when eight out of ten darts don't even hit the target, it's going to be hard to make that into a flow activity, right? But when you get to the point where eight out of ten are in the circles and the other two don't go off the board, somebody says, hey, your dinner's ready. Yeah, yeah, I'll be here in a minute. You're, just, you're in the flow. You're loving it. And you, you just don't want to quit. And that's the kind of difference. So, so all of these factors work together. But in terms of meditation, if you remember that the expectations that you create are going to have a big impact on whether it's a flow experience or not, you can learn to make the meditation into a flow experience. That's the point here. Okay? So, but when I... When I uh, you know, this little synopsis... Not, not quite as complete as the whole book. <laughs> um, what makes the flow experience enjoyable is a sense of successfully exercising control, which is not the same as being in control. And once again, you'd have to read the book to see what the distinction is that he's making there. But if you have a need to be in control, that's actually more the mindset where anything that happens that you're not able to control is going to keep you from entering flow. So it's, exer it's exercise and control is an important part. 
During the flow experience, a person becomes so involved in what they're doing that the activity becomes spontaneous, almost automatic, and they cease to be aware of themselves as separate from what they're doing. When you've had a really good meditation, isn't that what happens? It starts to flow. It starts to be automatic. It's like you're, you're right there, you're on top of it, moment by moment by moment, and you just, no matter what kind of practice you're doing. If you're doing an inside practice, it's like you're just hitting on every little and, and it just feels so good. So it becomes automatic. A complete focus of attention is required, allowing only a very select range of information into awareness, and leaving no room in the mind for anything else. All troubling or irrelevant thoughts are kept in abeyance. Now, what's important about this is your meditation practice one of the most important things it's trying to achieve is a unification of your mind. The reason that the reason that you experience life the way you do is different parts of your mind are trying to go in different directions at all times. And you sit down and meditate and you find that there's different parts of your mind that, you know, are not with that agenda at all. They have other things they want to think about, other things they'd rather be doing, you know. Unification of mind. So Whenever you start, you forget your problems, your concerns, and you become totally focused on one thing, joy arises, happiness arises. It becomes a very pleasant, satisfying state, just simply because you're no longer being plagued by all of these other petty concerns, worries, and so forth. And finally, the flow experience appears to be effortless, yet requires the application of skilled performance. While concentration lasts, everything happens seamlessly, as if by magic. And once again, remember, he is talking about ordinary, everyday activities that people experience as optimal experience. We're talking about meditation, but do you see how what he has discovered in his research is very helpful to us in meditation, understanding what it is that we've been doing and been trying to do all this time. And... The Buddha knew this. And that's why when the Buddha said what I call jhana is characterized by these factors. Unification of mind. Joy. Pleasure and happiness. And or equanimity. And some of the jhanas will see that that uh, the joy passes away but, they, but there is uh, equanimity arises. So this is the second of all of the different kinds of mental absorptions. Jhanas are wholesome absorptions that involve the jhana factors of unification of mind, joy, happiness and pleasure, and or equanimity. Right? You remember that? Okay. A third way that we've already alluded to that mental absorptions differ from each other is some, the ones that Csikszentmihalyi study happen in daily life out there in the world. The ones that we're talking about happen in meditation. Buddha restricted his use of the word jhana to the ones that happen in meditation. Well, of course, because that's what jhana means, is meditation. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. So, now what I want to do, what I, I'll sum this up for you by saying that when we look at the sutras, any meditative state that 
is that involves an absorption that is wholesome and involves uh, joy and uh, joy, happiness, pleasure, and equanimity is a jhana according to what the Buddha taught. So you have all probably experienced states for short periods of time, one time or another, that would definitely have been called jhanas. Now, there's one more way that mental absorptions can differ from one another, and that is the depth of absorption. How completely absorbed we are in whatever it is we're absorbed in. We can be sort of absorbed enough to feel joyful and happy and really enjoy what we're doing, but still aware of other things and still having other thoughts. Uh, and there can be greater depths of absorption. You have, I know all of you, have been so absorbed in something at one time or another that somebody's had to call your name three or four times and you didn't hear it. Or you've become completely oblivious to things going around you. Right? So you all know there are many different depths of absorption. And when I was talking about depths earlier, this is what I mean by depth. The depth, how completely focused you are on Whatever it is you're preoccupied with, that's the depth. And, of course, the debate that came up that I referred to earlier between commentarial jhanas and sutra jhanas is all, it's one of depth. And the commentaries and the people that follow that view would say, well, the only real jhanas are the ones that are at such a depth that you... If, if uh, somebody comes up and claps their hand next to you, you're not going to hear it. If they put your hand on the shoulder, you're not going to hear it. So this guy, Ajahn Brahm, this is the way he defines jhanas. And he tells a story. Um, supposedly, one of his students was in jhana, and his wife thought she'd had a heart, he'd had a heart attack. Called an ambulance. He was taken to the emergency room. They put the defibrillator on him and things like that. And then he came out of John and said, hey, what am I doing here? <laughs> could, could be a bit hyperbolic. I don't know. <laughs> but there are those people who will say, well, that's the only real jhana. You have to be that deep. And that's the kind of jhana that I first learned to do. And it's the kind of jhana that you're sitting there in that jhana and you're pretty much oblivious to everything. There is a part of your mind that still knows what goes on. I can tell you because I was practicing jhana and there was a car crash on the street in front of where I live, a little narrow street in, uh, in Vancouver. And there was a car crash and after I came out of the meditation, uh, someone I was living with said, wow, did you hear that car crash? And I hadn't. But when they said it, I remembered that, yes, there was, that that, that had happened. But if they'd never mentioned it, I would have never known. I couldn't, you know, I... It was, it was still an imprint in my mind. And probably if they waited half an hour, I wouldn't have remembered at all. So what's happening in, in these absorptions, it is the same thing that you've already experienced and you're familiar with. You become so completely preoccupied that 
a lot of stuff just doesn't come through. But there's all kinds of different levels. And anyway, I, I already covered this aspect earlier that is jhana dependent upon a particular depth or level of concentration, preoccupation, absorption? It's not. Not if we examine the sutras carefully. We'll see the Buddha, if, if you do that, you'll see that the Buddha, there are cases where uh, he's speaking about somebody's absorption, and they're in the first uh, jhana, and he refers to sound as being the enemy of the jhana. So obviously this is a person that can still hear sound, and if somebody makes a noise, they're going to disturb him from the jhana. But there are also other descriptions that make it clear that the person that he's speaking to or about has entered a much deeper state where they are much more totally, completely oblivious. Um, there's one... I can't remember the details. The, the most exaggerated story that I know of from the sutras themselves is um, has to do with somebody came and said that, well, Udaka Ramaputra once was in a, a jhana so deep that, I don't remember, it was a herd of elephants ran by and he didn't even notice. And so the Buddha responded to say, well, I've been in jhana so deep that lightning struck the building and it burned down around me and I didn't know it. <laughs> so so there, there are these, these references in there to different depths. But, okay, so that's, that's, what, that's what the jhana is. It's, it's an absorption. It's a mental absorption in meditation. Uh, it involves unification of mind, which we've talked about, but some of not all of you have been here for those discussions, what unification of mind is. Let me just explain that a little bit. There's a word samadhi, usually translated into English as concentration. And if you want to enter a jhana, you have to have a certain degree of concentration, of samadhi. But if we look at the real meaning of the word samadhi, it comes from samada, which means to collect or bring together. And so samadhi, which we translate as concentration, is a very reasonable translation, but it gives us a little greater depth of understanding if we realize that the actual root etymology of the word refers to the collecting together, the bringing together of the mind. And when you practice samadhi, at some point you will achieve what's called ekagata. Now, ekagata is another one of those words that has been sadly misunderstood and mistranslated. Uh, the complete term, the way you'll find it most often used, is chitas ekagata. Chitas means mind. Eka means one. Eka, those, team, char, you know, means one, or unity, same. Gata means gone. So, chitas ekagata means, unquestionably, it means a mind that is gone to unity. A unified mind. Now, often this word is translated as single-pointedness, which is not what it means in Pali, but which is how, it's, it's a very commonly used technique for achieving 
ekagata, unification of mind, is to practice single-pointed concentration, where you put your mind on one thing unwaveringly for as long as possible. But there is this confusion. Ekagata is unification of mind. It's not single-pointedness. Single-pointedness is a way of getting to ekagata. Unification of mind, now in my own personal experience, I didn't get this from books or anything like that, and in yours, many of yours too, what you will see is that you're meditating, your concentration's pretty good, you're staying, you don't lose the meditation object, as a matter of fact, your attention is pretty firmly fixed on it, but there's these other thoughts that keep coming in, and background noises, and every now and then one of them will just stand out, or some sensation in your body, or things like that. And if you go, if you, if the quality of your practice improves just a little bit, what you'll find is those thoughts fade away and disappear. And the tendency of an outside sound or sensation to be able to intrude like that disappears. And I've experienced that, and you've experienced that, and I've examined that. This is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is you examine the ordinary things that you experience. You just keep looking at them until one day, ah, and that's what happens. One day I realize that, well, there were parts of my mind that were thinking about this other stuff, and they were doing it the whole time. And when they finally stopped, no more distraction. There were parts of my mind that thought whatever that sound was was important or the ache in my ankle was important. And when I got to the point where those parts of my mind weren't trying to say, hey guys, you know, we got to attend to this other thing, enough of this. When my mind became unified, wow, meditation became very easy. As a matter of fact, it's a classical stage in the development of samatha. It's called effortless concentration. And it's amazing when it happens. You get to the point where Wow, I don't even have to try anymore. My mind just, you know, and that's because all the different parts of your mind are on the same task at the same time. So there isn't this struggle trying to, okay, you know, no, not that. No, not that either. You know, trying that's unification of mind. Unification of mind is when your whole mind, and that's what samadhi is about. Samadhi is collecting together all these different parts of your mind, getting them on the same task. Single-pointed practice is a way of bringing that about. Once it's brought about, though, once your mind is unified, you don't need to focus on one thing anymore. You don't. It's totally unnecessary. And as a matter of fact, there's very powerful meditation methods that are based not on focusing on one thing, but on open awareness. But you have to achieve that level of unification of mind in order to practice those methods effectively. So that's ekagata. That's what we're after, is the unification of mind. Now, in order to experience the jhanas this weekend, to experience the jhana for 30 seconds, you only need to have 30 seconds worth of unification of mind. Some thought may come along and bump you out of it, or some some sensation, or something else. But for that period of time, you'll 
you'll have a taste of jhana and you'll know what it is. Not only a taste of jhana, but a taste of unification of mind that leads to jhana. So. I'll tell you something else about unification of mind and the fact that you don't need single-pointed attention. Um, let's talk about mindfulness again. Mindfulness involves attention and awareness. Two different things. And you need to have both of them to be truly mindful, or at least you have to have... What's most important in terms of developing mindfulness is developing that awareness aspect. What we're all really good at is focusing on things already, focusing attention. We're so good at it that this is where we lose our mindfulness. We get caught up in something and everything else is lost. So there's attention and awareness. Mindfulness involves both, but the difference between mindfulness and the way our minds ordinarily work has more to do with the consciousness that is in that realm of awareness. Now, in the deep jhanas, I'm getting ahead of things that I was going to tell you about tomorrow, but I'll go ahead and tell you tonight. <laughs> in the first jhana, the jhana factors that are there are directed and sustained attention, joy, pleasure, and happiness. In the second jhana, directed and sustained attention are not present. They have been relinquished. You look at the description of these two jhanas in the Pali, in a good English translation of the Pali, it says that the second jhana is characterized by unification of mind without directed and sustained attention. Because, you see, we use directed and sustained attention, that focused aspect of consciousness, to enter the first jhana. But if the mind is truly unified, we can let go of that. We don't need a meditation object. The second jhana is just pure awareness. Awareness. The second jhana is characterized by unification of mind without vitaka vichara, without directed and sustained attention, but accompanied by joy, pleasure, and happiness. So you have the experience of joy, pleasure, and happiness you are aware, you're fully conscious, you're aware of joy, consciousness, and happiness, but you're not focused on any one thing. You're not attending. There is no directed and sustained attention. And that's, uh, in the deep jhanas, all of the higher levels of jhana, second, third, fourth, and all the formless jhanas, do not involve attention to an object. What they do involve is awareness. And that's where the mindfulness comes in, that awareness in these jhanas is the mindfulness. Um, so, yes. So if you're so, um, if, if mindfulness is there, and and you're at the same time so absorbed that you can't, you know, hear a sound outside of you, what kind of mindfulness is that? Okay, <laughs> that is a very good question to understand mindfulness. You actually must, I'm sure you've already done this, I know some of the people you've practiced with, 
do a walking meditation with the instruction to try to be aware of everything in the moment. Have you done that practice? And it's absolutely impossible. Right. So, with the greatest degree of awareness that you can cultivate and bring into presence, you're only going to be aware of a relatively small subset of everything that makes up the present. This is a really important thing to realize. In when the Buddha discussed mindfulness or discussed sati, which we translate as mindfulness, he made it really clear that for mindfulness to truly be valuable, it needs to be combi- combined with sampajana, which we translate as clear comprehension. Sati sampajana. And the translation is clear comprehension totally loses the essence of the meaning because the way it's explained, sampajana is knowing what is happening, why it's happening, what its causes are and what its purpose is, and whether it's appropriate or not. Now, introspective awareness is what I call this because if you learn to watch your own mind, you start out learning to watch your own mind so that you'll know if your mind's wandering, You'll know if you're slipping into dullness. And you develop the habit of watching your own mind. And that becomes sampajana. Because sati sampajana is where you know what's going on in your mind. You know what its causes and purposes are. And you also know, not analytically, not by thinking about it and saying, oh, well, that's not really what I want to be doing. But you know in an immediate way, this is not what my mind... You know, if you practice mindfulness regularly, you will experience sati sampajana when you're in the middle of a situation and you think it should go this way, but it's going that way, and then in a moment your mind will say, okay, I don't need to resist this. That's sampajana. You know what's happening. You know why it's happening. Okay, I got attached to this outcome. And you know that, well, that's not appropriate. You know immediately without analyzing that if I stay attached to it, I'm just going to be unhappy. So then you let go of it. That's an experience of sati sampajana in daily life. But sati sampajana is knowing what's going on in your mind, why it's going on, and whether it's appropriate or not. This is what you have throughout the jhanas when you're not paying uh, attention. I, I don't know if I've lost track of the original question. What was the original question? Well, I was just saying that you, you talked about um, about being so absorbed in the jhanas mm-hmm. that you didn't yes. say hear something that was right. You know, out, you heard on the street, but it wasn't really part of your yeah. mind. But so, my question had to do with right. mindfulness, which to me, mindfulness brings up the idea that you are aware of everything right. around you and how you're responding inside. Okay, it's impossible to be aware of everything and what it's most important to be aware of. This is what I was getting at. What the Buddha said it's most important to be aware of is what's going on inside. You can't be aware of everything. So since you can't be aware of everything, be aware of what's most important. What's most important is what's going on in your mind. And an illustration of the difference between sati that is directed outward versus sati 